Happy New Year! This week on the podcast, we are starting 2020 very strong. My extra special guest this week is Michael Scantonbury. He is the founder and creative director of Impero, the winner of five Agency of the Year awards. And if you are remotely interested in how to grow a multi-award winning world-class agency, then this is the podcast for you. He arrives in the UK at 29 years old without knowing anyone except his wife and over the next 10 years builds one of the most well-respected agencies in the world. We talk about everything from how they beat Wyden and Kennedy in a competitive pitch for a huge global account that, that really put them on the map, uh, how to change your structure of your agency every time you go from 8 to 16 to 20 to 30 people. It really requires a fundamental restructuring in the way that you do things. Why he thinks the magic number in an agency of employees is 75. Uh, we discuss how he sets goals. This is probably one of the most honest and accurate accounts that you will hear about the pain. Yes, the pain of growing and running a successful agency. Michael holds no punches when he describes the challenges of getting to where they are today. He didn't even have an agency background uh, when he was a, when he had about eight people. He didn't know what an account manager was, so he had to ask one of his employees, "Hey, what does an account manager do again?" By the way, parental advisory warning: if you've got children or young people listening, you may want to cover their ears. Michael uses some very colorful language in the interview. Um, one of the most fascinating conversations we've had so far. Michael is. Funny, straight-talking, honest, humble, and just a, a real pleasure to speak to. So I'm going to stop talking now and just say, without me keeping you in suspense any further, my conversation with Michael Scantonbury. Michael Scantonbury is the founder of Impero, a modern independent creative agency and the winner of five Agency of the Year awards. Impero's clients include Martel Cognac, Heineken, Volvic Water Brands at Danone, West Midlands Trains, Lint, uh, Havana Club Rum and General Mills. Impero is 77% female with six out of seven departments run by women and 100% gender pay parity across the board. He's also the founder of Live and Wired. I'm very much looking forward to the conversation. Michael Scanterbury, welcome to Agency Dealmasters. G'day, nice to be here. Thanks for having me. You have the most unconventional and unlikely career path. It's been a very long and hard road to sort of get to where you are now with the success of Impero. You come to the UK at 29 years old. You had no friends, no family. Your wife was already here working within a law firm. Your first job was washing dishes. Take us back to that time around 29 years old. How did Impero come to be? Um, well, first of all, I wasn't washing dishes. When I was um, 11 years old, I went to a job interview to wash dishes. And, ah. it, and I thought, you know what? I'm never going to a job interview again. Huh. Um, and when I was 29, I broke that rule and I turned up in the UK and I went to a job interview to be a creative director. And as soon as I walked in and I thought, ah, it's not for me. I'm not going to get this job. But let's be honest. Um, so why? Thought, what was it about that? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I just remember, do you know what it was actually, which is um, 
which I think is quite funny. I remember walking in there, and this is the stupidest thing to say, but I looked at, you know, they're really nice guys, had a great agency, um, an independent agency, and I sat down and I thought, they're wearing shirts and their hair yeah. pushed backwards. I'm in a hoodie and my right. hair's... <laughs> right. That's probably a telling sign. Sure, sure. There were suits. Really, really interesting. Um, okay, so, so you're in the UK at this point. You've just turned down this role. Then what do you do? Um, I sat there and for about three months, I thought I'm going to take some time off. So I had a couple of businesses in New Zealand and I, and I sold those when I came over and I thought I took some time off and I found I took three months off and I found it the most stressful time possibly of my life. I really just didn't enjoy being unproductive. I, I would spend my days thinking about how I could best fill my time to make use of my time. And by the time I looked up to think of how, what I was going to do that day it was already 4 p.m. And I just, it's kind of, it just, I, in all honesty, it was a lazy option to start my own agency because yeah. I found doing nothing highly stressful. <laughs> really interesting. Um, but okay, but let's go back a little bit further than this because because even though when you came to the UK, you didn't really have any friends or family, um, I think you followed your, your wife's career at the time. When you were in New Zealand, you won the Young Enterprise of the Year Award and as a result, at 16 years old, and as a result of that, you traveled to Singapore where you met another winner of the award where you came together to uh, create a new business together. Talk a little bit about that, if you can. Yeah, that's right. So I won the award with, um, uh, it's a school-based program. It's really good, actually. And I, I don't know if they do it over here, but they should. So it's called the Young Enterprise Scheme. And basically what you do is you start a business in, I think, your sixth form year, which is, you know, that's obviously you don't use forms anymore. So it'd be about when you're 16 years old. Mm -hmm. Run that business in a school for a year. Um, so the business that I was um, with, we won. Um, and then there was a couple of other schools that also won. And all of us went over to Singapore as part of the prize. Um, Singapore Airlines was the major sponsor at the time. Um, and I met someone there and I remember thinking, I don't know how we won this award because our business idea was crap. And she actually had a really good one. And hers was, this was sort of dial-up days, you know, pre-internet proper. Mm. I mean, she was, she had produced, um, um, a dining guide on CD-ROM, which fucking hell, that makes me feel old, doesn't it? But that's, so that's. <laughs> We, the next year I was off to university, we were going to the same university and I don't know what it's again like what it's like over here, but university you seem to have more free time than the actual time doing anything. So we right. said, why don't we keep this going? And for the next um, sort of three or four years, we created New Zealand's first and probably only dining guide on CD-ROM. So me and her would, wow. would knock restaurant doors and would say, you know, for, for $200 a year, you can have this, for $300 a year, you can have that, or, you know, here's the gold package. You know, right. Plus, sort of 17-year-old business skills. Um, and we signed up a bunch of um, restaurants to this thing. And, you know, over those two or three years, we, we obviously took it from a CD-ROM that was distributed on the, on the front cover of, of a bunch of magazines down there to pushing it online. So we sort of created New Zealand's first online dining guide. Wow. Um, and we grew that. We grew it. We had the cities of Auckland and Wellington. We actually bought a competitor for the grand sum of about $15,000. Um, and merged it um, just to get rid of the competitor in the market. And you know what? It was a great little business in the end. We, we got it to a point where um, it was all automated. So we built the tech in the background. It was all automated. Literally, all I had to do every month was um, print and post the invoices. And it was a great little business. Um, that and is it, phenomenal. Yeah, it was. And it's, you know, I ended up selling that to a media company down there. Yeah. Um, 
but it also because it was such low time involvement but it was it was all blood sweat and tears but by the time it, we got it so automated it gave us the opportunity to, to do a couple of other things that we wanted to do and, and start a few other things. You built an automated CD-ROM business, the first of its kind in New Zealand, at 16, 17 years old. Yeah, well, it was more like 20 by the time we actually had it. Okay, by that time. But yeah, still, okay, 20 years old. <laughs> That's phenomenal. So would you say that you're a natural entrepreneur then? Because it seems as though this is in your blood. I don't know. I've only ever run my own businesses. So I guess the true answer is yes. Um, but it could possibly be more born from a fear of rejection. Like when I was rejected from that first um, yeah. uh, dishwashing job, I thought, fuck this. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, I'm, at least I won't reject myself, right? Sure, so, sure. Really interesting. No, yeah, that's probably the answer. Like, I, I, I do like to do my own thing. Yeah. I do like to run businesses. I like the business side of business. I find right. it interesting. I find it intriguing. I find it super hard, super difficult, yeah, but I also we'll find talk it fun. <laughs> we'll talk about the difficulties in a moment. Just before we do that, so you essentially met this this young lady who had this great idea for uh, dining guides on CD-ROMs. You said, that's a much better business than mine. Let's do that. What was your business? Um, we were idea. running these um, conferences. <laughs> it was fucking ridiculous. <laughs> we were running these conferences down and over. Like, I come from a small town, right? 70,000 people. And we were running conferences. You know, thinking back, they were basically self-help conferences. And we were, you know, got lo local speakers in and we, we sold tickets to them. I think we did three or four of them in the year. Right. Um, and they made money, but it was yeah. and giggles. But, it, you know, there was something the judges liked. And, and okay. So Sure. No, that's a business as well. That's yeah. probably not as lucrative and scalable as the CD-ROMs, uh, as, as a dining guide on CD-ROMs, but uh, also quite lucrative. Um, so, so as we explained earlier, you are the creative director and the founder of Impero that's just won five amazing awards in, in 2018, Agency of the Year Awards. Give us a helicopter view of where Impero is today. So we've got, we're based here in London, and we've got a, um, an office also in Argentina. Uh, we have, um, there's about 35 to 40 of us all together. We're a, um, a creative agency. We, we help FMCG brands and fashion brands grow. Um, we, we believe we're very strategically minded. Um, we have sort of a, a sort of a, um, well, what, what we talk about a lot, actually, of Imperia is, is sort of a, a positive impatience. Um, people that meet me usually know I'm, I'm relatively sort of very impatient person. I, I like to get things done. I like to get them into the world and I like to see things in action. So we sort of try and build the culture around that. And, and we, we, we're best working with brands that sort of, you know, have that impatience. I mean, we talk to brands all the time and, you know, they, they might have like a great product that's right up the time and they just can't quite seem to unlock it. And my advice to them is, well, let's get impatient about this. Let's get into the world. Let's, let's put some things into the world and see if we can get this brand in, in faster, bigger motion. Right. Um, and, you know, within the agency that, that spans strategy, creative design and, and you know, accounts and, and, and project management and so on. But, yeah, that's sort of that's how we approach work. We like to sort of have this, this positive impatience about everything we do. Makes sense. So from arriving in the UK at 29 with no, no friends and family to, to in 2018 winning five Agency of the Year awards, how did you do that? Take us on that journey of the early days of Impero. What did it look like? What were you selling? Who were you selling to? <laughs> In the early days, anything to anyone that would buy it. <laughs> um, so I remember day one, I bought a, bought a laptop, bought a phone. 
I sat there, rented a desk in Shoreditch, and I remember thinking, fucking hell, this is ridiculous. I've literally known no one, no, no one to call. So um, I sat there looking at the phone and my computer and thinking, well, this is, you know, this is, this is mindless. Um, so it took a little while to build up some steam and so on. But one of the things I really do believe about sort of starting a business, you know, I've started four now, and so I think I've got some experience in this, is I don't. The, the challenges of being a business that, that's up and going and even got five or 10 or 15 or 30 people in it are a lot different from the challenges of day one. Challenges of day one, you've got to find someone to pay you to do something. Survival. And we be sort of like philosophical about, well, we've got yeah. to understand our positioning. We've got to be truly distinct in the market. We've right. got to know who we are. Right. Yeah. Or you can fucking just go and do something. Sell something. So when I was first came here, it was the start of social media. I'd done a bit of that stuff with my own brands in New Zealand. I kind of understood how digital and social um, worked. I had a point of view of how it worked. And when I came over here, I just thought, I think I'm gonna try and sell this point of view. And it was that, it was just sort of the hustle and bustle of talking to enough people, picking up the phone and going, look, I think I, I think if, you, if, if, if we do something to you, we can do it better. And so we started off doing social media content. We were, you know, I had at one stage six or seven developers here. We were developing websites for, you know, to increase conversion and build brand experiences and so on. And we were basically just became this kind of creative digital and social agency, not through design, but through mm -hmm. hustle, just, just trying to make it happen. Mm -hmm. I always knew in all us in the back of my mind, I want to own, I want to work in partnership with clients and really do everything for that brand, really own the soul of the brand. And it doesn't mean like actually I've got to make every single piece of content and, and do every ad, but own the, the brand strategy with that client. That, but I, but there's no point in me knocking on a door saying, hi, it's me, I work from one desk, can we? Mm. Can I own the soul of the brand with you? Like you've got to start, you've got to get in motion. And so that, that's how I really started it. And it, it came with one client, you know, I started with one client and then, the, you know, one client knows another one and you ask for a favor and then it becomes two clients and then all of a sudden it's three and then the fourth one, you know, the fourth client might suck so you've got to get rid of them and then you go and find a new fourth one and it's just, I just, you know, you've got to get, I had to get things in motion otherwise I was going to be sitting there in a year's time still mm. looking at my phone and my computer and thinking, well, how am I going to explain this to my wife? Well, you say you say the first gate is hiring your first employee and paying their wages every month predictably. And then so talk about when you went from zero to one, zero employee to one employee and sort of what that was like. And then talk about when you went to eight people, 18 people, 28 people. What were the challenges that you had at each stage? Yeah, so I, 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 I've spoken to other um, business and agency owners and, and this seems to be a pretty similar pattern that you kind of go through these gates where the first one is, is, you know, so I started this agency on my own. Now, a lot of people are smarter than me and start them with partners, two or three or four partners, right? Which means that that first step is smaller because adding the, if there's four of you, adding the fifth person isn't that big a deal. But you basically go from someone who can not, you know, you can maybe not take a salary or not, not take any pay for three months to make stuff happen to a business that is now committed to making payments to, mm -hmm. to someone and, and, and as well as the overheads. Mm -hmm. So it takes a big step to, to, to take that on. It's a big mm -hmm. emotional mental step to go, yep, I'm going to take responsibility for this. Mm -hmm. And then for the first time, it means you don't have to do everything. So you've got to make that sort of step change about it. I can offer more things to more people, but I, but I, don't, I don't need to do anything. Mm -hmm. The next one is when I reckon you get to about seven or eight people, right? And you you kind of sit there and you go, right, the agency looks like this. It's me and six or seven people underneath me or, or you know, beside me more like that are doing the work and I'm here just trying to manage in the work. And you realize that that isn't actually that scalable. It can't be one of you organizing it and 20 of you doing it. So you, you've got to start 
to make a change, which is, an, you know, it's another expensive change. You've got to bring a couple more people on that actually help facilitate and make the work happen that aren't physically doing it. And that usually, so once you've worked that out, that, and, and, and that gate might take a little while to get through because you've got to find the right people and so on. Um, then you kind of, again, you, you kind of grow relatively easily up to about 18 people where you think, well, actually, now we've got to start adding in sort of more middle management and more sort of like senior heads within the business, which is, it's expensive. You've got to, your average salary um, starts to really jump up at that point because you've got to add more senior people to the business. So it's not just you facilitators and sort of, people doing the actual work, it's more senior people maybe at your level to keep doing that. And once you've worked that out, found the right people, which again, it could take you, it might take, you might be, you know, you might be really good at that and it might take you a month or two to work that out, but you know, it could take you two years to work that out and work out how to get through that. You rush, but once you're through it, you rush again up to, you know, grow quite quickly, everything going well, 28, 30 people. Um, and then you've got to restructure the business as well. So. At each step, you've got to really think about, well, who do I need on, if you're a service business like we are, who do I need and what do we need to do to, to get through these kind of barriers, these gates? Hmm. And where actually we find ourselves now, you know, I'll be honest with you, like we find ourselves now at about 35, 40 people and it's like, I, I can see it happening and I'm starting to make these changes. The, the shape of the agency needs to change again so we can go from 40 up to 50, 55, you know, or whatever that next gate will be. And it's those that, those gates that I reckon slow you down, it's those gates that create, you know, maybe my overarching impatience because you have to, it's not about just doing work and doing, building great relationships. Sure. The, you've got a, the structure of the agency itself has mm. changed and you can fuck that up. You can get the structure wrong. You can mm. do it too quickly, too late. And, and those, you know, it's those kind of natural gates that once you, once you get to, you've got to work out as quickly as possible how to get through and the growth usually follows each of them. Really interesting. So you mentioned that you recently brought in adults, sort of more senior people that have been in the agency for a long time and that have seen it and done it. Whereas before you were pretty much all creatives and I guess kind of just figuring out how to grow the agency um, by yourselves. What was the impetus to bring in those grown-ups or those professionals? And where is the, you know, where are you going with that? Yeah, well, it's kind of, I mean, you, you, you mentioned this earlier that like, um, you know, it's kind of, un. what did you say? You said it was a, a non-traditional way to sort of run an agency. Start, right, definitely. Yeah. And, and the reason is, is because I've never worked in an agency before okay. in my life. Like, I've, I've never really stepped foot in a big creative agency. Um, so, you know, it's unconventional because I shouldn't be fucking doing it. Um, and... I literally, at eight people, someone had to explain to me what an account manager was. I was like, what the hell? Are you talking, what is an account manager? I don't understand what that is. So I had to explain to me, right? And then we right. got 18 people. Uh, someone had to explain to me what a project manager was. And 28 people, what a traffic manager was. I, I, I remember sitting in a meeting going, well, we've been talking what? about a traffic manager for 40 minutes. I'm the only person here that doesn't know what the fuck a traffic manager is. Oh, um, brilliant. And, you know, it's, you know, it's a bit sort of laughable, but now obviously what we're trying to do is get up to this next gate. It's I, so six months ago, I was the managing director and ECD of this agency. Mm. I mean, that, that's, that's ridiculous. That's a nonsense. So mm. it took me a little while to work out. Maybe I need to start t looking at my role and breaking it up into different parts and bringing in some adults to run. I call them adults, but like people that have done this before sure. aren't doing it. So it's, it's kind of, it's weird. I really do believe that the best the best track record, you, the sort of the, what's the word? Um, 
the best knowledge comes from people with a track record of being there, done that, sure. right? Right now, I'm trying to find people that have been there, done that before mm-hmm. to help help this agency go to where we want to take it. So bringing on someone like Emily, who's, who's our new managing director, to come on, she's 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 worked in an agency that started at about, you know, started with four people, ended with 150 people. Mm-hmm. Um, same with my um, head of business, same with my head of um, client services. These people have taken these paths before and therefore... I can learn from them and they can they can bring in knowledge to the business that, that allows us to get through those gates quicker. So where do we want to be? Well, I've always had this idea in my head um, that, and I don't know why, um, but I've always thought that the, an agency is probably at its best at about 70 to 75 people. So mm-hmm. what I'm trying to do in the next couple of years is basically double in size. Um, I think that because right now we've got a great a great motion designer sitting, you know, outside. I, I can see him out there working. He's, he's a great motion specialist, and we can do amazing stuff with motion. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we were seventy-five, I could have three, and I could have, you know, I could have real dedicated shit-hot skills. Sure. Some guy wasn't expected to do to know the full gambit of of uh, motion design. He could simply concentrate on on what he really wanted to do, and that's. Mm-hmm particular angle and i think at about 75 people you I've, I've done the gint chart before you know i've looked and i go yep that feels that feels like we've got the right enough specialized skills and enough areas to do that and i also think at 75 people you are you are, are big enough to have that might and trust behind you to mm-hmm. get, step up the ladder of brands you work with but you're not 150 200 people where you're across three floors of a building and politics and all that kind of, you kind of kill the culture at that mm-hmm. stage it seems to me you know, we hire a lot of people out of big agencies, and that seems to me the one thing they say here, the culture is is visceral. It's there. People know it. They understand it, and they like it. Where in those big agencies, it's it's the culture is either negative or it's just not as visceral. It's not sure. as visceral. Really, really interesting. Now, okay, so you're at 35, you're at 35 people now. You mentioned that you've just brought in these these adults. I guess the question is... At what point do you need to be careful that the adults don't stifle your creativity? Because to a certain extent, you've gotten here by yourself and the momentum and the elbow grease that you've injected into the business has sort of gotten you to where you are. Is there a danger that you're bringing in people who are maybe possibly stifling that creativity that has enabled you to achieve the success that you've achieved thus far? Uh, I've never thought about that. You might have a good point. You might have to have a meeting after school. <laughs> uh, no, I don't think so. I, I don't think it's a true representation to say I got here by myself. I got here with a lot of people sharing a passion. So, you know, these people that we're bringing in now to like, you know, taking us, taking the whole age to the next step, share that passion. And that's, that's the hiring plan, right? Like it's, there are plenty of great, wonderful, awesome, smart people in the world. But if they don't share that passion of, of, of you want to get from A to B and you kind of share the vision of how you want to get there, then they're not right for this agency. They could be right for another one, which is great. So, yeah, I, I hope that would never be an issue because we would share that same sort of passion that the work's got to be paramount. Like, you know, we, I don't want four cold callers sitting here pounding the phones trying to get clients. I want I want the clients to be calling us because they, they see the work. They see the passion of this agency and they see like, Mm, that's, those are the guys that I want working with me on this one. Hmm. Now, you talk about the ambition of the agency being to double in size to roughly 60-ish over the next few years. Has that always been the ambition from the from the founding beginnings of the agency? Or has that ambition changed over the years? How, how does that change? How do you think about that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, uh, 
yeah, it, it, it always changes. And it doesn't change as in like, um, right, the goals suddenly change. The goals, I, I don't really believe in like setting goals three, four, five years in advance. And all mm-hmm. It's good to have something to aim for, but it's a, it's a it's a fucking nonsense to sit there on day one and start planning out how you're going to be, um, you know, 150 people. Because it's fucking miles away. Just keep the lights on. Find a client. Like, do something. Get, get some work done. You know, just worry about today. Just worry about getting through the year, just worry about where you want to be next year and, and so on. And so we're, I'm always kind of thinking two years in advance. I, I, don't, I think like, so, so to answer your question, 10 years ago, I was not thinking about getting to 75 people. Mm-hmm. I was thinking, how do we, how do we take that next step? And, mm-hmm. and then five years ago, also, how do we, what's the next step for us? The next step is where we are now. And so it's like, you know, it's always about the next step and, and and it's usually about a one or two year plan to get there mm. uh, doesn't mean it's going to happen but you know that that's how far i plan out so yeah the, the goals always change because what's ahead of you looks slightly different and those one or two year goals how do you make sure that you're hitting them do you give everyone sort of weekly targets and numbers to make sure that you're online you know you're on course every month and every quarter to hit certain kpis or is it more is it less structured than that how do you make sure that you hit those one and two year goals? Now, you see, this is something I've fucked up many times. <laughs> and so I don't know if I'm right now, but right. I'll tell you, I'll answer the question by telling you, and, and you know, there might be listeners out there that emphasize with it, how I fucked it up three years ago. So three years ago, we were, we were probably more like that. We we're much more, what, what do we do? You know, what's the weekly goal? What are the monthly goals? Are we, how are we going month by month by month? And it, it, it just had this overarching sort of effect that, we stopped talking about the work and we kept talking about the month and how the month was going. And, you know, we were going good. The months were hitting themselves, but it just became a little bit cyclical and monotonous. And when the months don't go well, as they inevitably will do, like not not all businesses are going to be growing at a million miles an hour every single day. They, you will have up quarters and down quarters and so on. Like you can't ride the dailies on this. You can't just be in the weeds of it the whole time. So. I reckon I screwed that up and, and wore a lot of people thin in all honesty two or three years ago when that's we, we had this kind of culture of month to month sort of pressure and we became more of a sales mentality than a work mentality. So been trying to change that and you know, once you put a culture in place, it's sort of hard to change it. So I've been doing my best to try and like and, and we are there now, I believe like, no, don't worry about it. for this month, that's cool, you know, let's look at this look at a quarter. Let's 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 make hmm. sure we're an agency that wants to grow. But we're not going to grow by looking at every single day that goes by. We're going to grow by doing great work, building great relationships, mm. and doing stuff in the world that, that we're super proud of. So let's look at that. It's like I always sort of talk about this thing, and I don't know how sort of wise it is, but you can own, you can control the inputs, you can't control the outputs, right? Yeah. So as an agency, you can you can control what you're doing, you can control how to do it, but sometimes, no matter how much you think that's right, the outputs might still be fucking. Horrible. It might be dog shit for, for situations outside your control. And I think when you think too short term, those things that are outside your con- control start to feel like they should be in your control. But if you start to think a little bit longer, like what what are we trying to do this quarter? What are the big strategic things we want to do for the business? What's how many? What do we want to win? <coughs> Excuse me. What do we sort of want to achieve financially and so on? Those kind of daily ups and downs fade away a little bit more, and 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 the outputs look a little bit closer to what you tried to make the inputs. Hmm. Quite, quite fascinating. What's, what's been the hardest part of growing Impero to this point? Uh, they're all 
fucking <laughs> hard. Like I kind of, I don't know. I, I, I got asked that the other day, and I just don't have a good answer. To really, it. it's all been hard. Yeah, it is hard. Like I just is there a hard? Is there an easier part in that journey? So going from zero to one to eight people to ten, twenty. What's been probably yeah? It's probably a way easier. Where if someone could tell me, I'd, I'd love to know. Like. <laughs> Like I, I, because I've never run an agency, I was re, I literally feel like I've reinvented the world. One of yeah. the things I tried to do was just ask. Like, I know people that own agencies. I just tried to, you know, make friends with these people that make it. So I could ask them, how did you do that? And how did you? And a lot of them don't have the answers either, I'll, I'll be honest with you. But it's yeah. like, it's, I don't know. I wish there was an easier way. I'm sure there must be. I'm mm. sure that there must be. <laughs> this is just. It's been like pulling teeth. Oh, so. It's like every day it's like, you know, you've got to grow some more teeth so you can yank them out. (laughs) Really interesting because from the outside looking at you, you know, multi-award winning, uh, agency of the year, it just looks like a breeze. It looks like like you wake up this way. Uh, But it's, you know, it's been really challenging. So how do you think about business development then? Because you said, obviously, you don't want people on the phone, um, hammering the phone all day. You want people to come to you. Do you th- how do you think about business development? Outbound, inbound, based on the strength of the brand? Yeah. Um, I believe what you want it as inbound as possible. Inbound, inbound are usually the best. Uh, uh, inbound, are, um, there's already a more of a, there's more of a, when someone comes to you because they've seen your work, there's more of a mutual sort of, it's less about trying to sell someone sure. the idea of impairing. Sure. It's more about let's get together and see if our, our sort of ambitions align. What are the ambitions for your brand? Um, and do you know do we share those ambitions? You know, sometimes the truth is agencies are more ambitious about brands than brands are, hmm. and and because you don't know the internal workings, right? Sometimes brands are there just to be managed, and some and, you know because everyone every business got their strategic brands to grow, and sure. some are strategically there to be managed. So it's good to to understand those ambitions and share them. And I think when it's inbound, obviously it's more of a like, well, let's have an open discussion about like where this could go. When it's outbound, of course, that you know. Like I get a thousand emails a day from people outbound calling me. Like they all get deleted. Every now and then someone will convince me to get on the phone and mm. it's like, all right, I'll give you two minutes, go. And I, and I know it's a bit mean sure. and a bit miserable, but it's like right now you're trying to sell to me. So I don't I'm, I don't think of ourselves as great salespeople. I want to do great work that brings those inbound clients. And, mm. and, and it does work. Like I know that, you know, when you do great work and, it's, and it gets the public eye, the phone rings. Like mm. it, it's, it's, it's as easy as that. So mm. I'd much, and, and that's, there seems to be no loss in that, right? There's no, there's no heartache in that. We did great work for a client who we now have a better relationship with and we, and we know that brand's grown. We've got a story to tell. They, they're great. They, they feel happy. They're growing their brand. They're getting the internal fame for it. And guess what? The phone just rang because someone else saw that work too and they also want to talk. They, mm. there's, no, there's no loss in that. Mm. We're outbounders. I don't know. And I'm sure, and I'm sure, um, winning agency of the year in 2018 must have done wonders for the phone ringing. Yeah, it does. You know, can't deny that. Um, uh, you've got to sing about it yourself a little bit. You've got to make people aware of it. Um, also doing award winning work and, and, and work that sort of hits the press a bit. Mm-hmm. That, that, that's the difference. This the truth is, like in this agency world, there's just too many of us. There's too many fucking agencies. We're all fighting. We're all super competitive. That's why it's so hard. So, you know, what's one more outbound um, email in, in a brand manager's death, uh, turning up in their inbox? That's not going to do much. But if they start calling you because they see the work, then that's a massive advantage. Hmm. 
Really, really interesting. So you said that your role has changed slightly. So you were creative director and uh, managing director. What are you now on, and what does a typical day look like? Um, um, what does a typical day look like? There is no typical day. Yeah, there is no typical day. Like, a few fires to put out. I mean, I like the work. So I like sitting there and doing like the brand, the, the strategies, the creative work. I like doing that. So the most time I can spend on that, the sort of happier I am. Um, I like the business side of it to the point where I like the ambition of the business side. Like I'm probably one of the few creative directors that can read a balance sheet and understand all that. But that's just through sort of, um, you know, doing it for, for you know, running businesses for 20 years. Um, so and I like that side of it as well. Um, but the managing director role, I think that's about just like, well, if there's two people out there taking on that role, then you get twice as much throughput. So I really don't like it when there's bottlenecks, especially if that bottlenecks me. I feel really guilty about that. So, so my roles change possibly because I'm I'm I'm, I'm less of a bottleneck, not a complete. Um, it's not completely gone. I've still got to do work on that, but yeah, that's probably how my roles change. So instead of going right, I've got to do, do this managing director role. I've got to think about this over here. Mm-hmm. I've got time if I'll do some of the work. It's a bit more like right. What are, what's the work today? Hmm. So what does a typical day look like? Uh, well, I'll tell you what. This morning I have been reviewing work from some creatives for a campaign we're looking at. Um, I'm currently doing a podcast with your lovely self. Um, this afternoon, I'm going to be working on um, something in the travel retail space for the booze brand. And later tonight, I will probably be, um, I don't know, checking up an email. So that's, there's, there's a, that, that, by the way, is a good day. The other day is there's about 19 fires blazing. I'm just trying to spray across the whole lot of Right. You've got a small firing hose to put them all out. Um, Okay, so let's talk about growth and winning new business, uh, specifically sort of large accounts, because you beat Wyden and Kennedy 24 months ago in a year in a pitch for the Beef Eater Gins global business account. Is that right? That's right. How did you guys do that? Um, uh, How did we do that? So I remember in the... On the, I wasn't. I was actually overseas for the original briefing message, uh, briefing day on that. And my team came back from the briefing day, and they told me, you know, told me about the brief, went through and that, and I said, cool. With the, and the, they said the other agencies were there in the briefing room, um, and they told us that, you know, um, Wine, Wine and Kennedy were there from Amsterdam, which is, you know, got to be the Huge. world, the world's best agency. Sure. Um, and I thought, fucking hell. Like, How big were you at the time? Uh, 25, maybe 25, yeah. Um, and I just thought, right, you might not never get a chance to beat a widening Kennedy. So this is it. And, and the first thing I do with a pitch is not try and work out um, what's the brief or how, what's the strategy or those sort of things. I think about what's going to win it. What's going to win it? And I reckon that we worked out there that the advantages were we were passionate about that brand. That brand is perfect for, for an agency like us. Like we really like those classic brands that need real reinvigoration. Um, and I just thought we'll outwork them, outwork the fuckers. And we did. We just outworked them. Every step was a three-phase step and we just worked and worked and worked. And we turned up with more things to talk about. We turned up with more work. We turned up with more mock-ups. And, and I, we just... We just wanted it more, you know, and and the campaign that came out of the back of it was, 
was was brilliant. And and you know the, the work for Beefeater Pink, which led off for it, was was also brilliant. Um, some of the best work that we've ever done. And it's I think the way that we won that was we just wanted more. The we truth wanted is, it more. Like, and, know, that, and that came across in the pitch and the work that you delivered. How do you know that it was because you you worked harder? Did the client tell you that? Is that just a, a gut feel that you got from the impression? I mean, what what gave you that sense? Yeah, yeah, we were told that because yeah. we always, you, It's a good thing to always ask why you lose and, and why you won. Yeah, and be careful what you what you learn from both of those questions, but mm. oh, both those answers. But mm. yeah, they told us. They said you just seem to sort of want it you more. Wanted it more, and and that's that makes sense, right? Like, yeah, it does. It's an amazing agency, and I'm not and, you know, and like I would be amiss to sit here and say anything other, but. For us, the beef eater account for them is, is or an account of that size. Huge. Huge. To them, they got Nike, right? Yeah. So, so you know, so they don't. It's another it's, account. It's another account, right? And so you've. That's why I always think to sit down and go, how are we going to win it? Mm. If we can, if we can show that we want this more, we should win it because it's actually it's wildly unfair for a client. And you ask a client, and they'll tell you this. It is wildly unfair for 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 three agencies to turn up whatever it is on a pitch and say, look, here's three different strategies. Here's three different creative solutions to your problem. You choose, you tell us what's the best one. That's not, that's unfair. That's a question nobody can answer. So you've got to think everyone's going to turn up with amazing work. How are we going to, so take that for granted. Everyone's going to turn up with amazing work. How are we going to make it easier for them to choose us? Well, if you truly want it more, show them that you truly want it more. Hmm. And that should make the decision for them easier. Really interesting. But obviously, when you first knew that you were pitching against Wyden and Kennedy, the the first thought was, how are we ever going to do this? They're huge, they're massive, they're established, they've got clients out of their arm. Uh, you know, it's, it's going to be a challenge. And we talked in the pre-interview about imposter syndrome and how so many entrepreneurs feel it, I feel it, <laughs> regularly speaking to uh, agency owners. Um, but you said you said that you also feel it as well because I I think the question that I asked you before was, you know, you've won five agency of the year awards, you've got some fantastic clients, you've delivered some amazing work. You're clearly justified in the position where you are in the marketplace, but you kind of felt I kind of got the sense that you didn't feel as though you were sort of worthy of 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 that. Talk about that. Yeah, I mean, imposter syndrome is real, right? Um, I don't think I don't think no one doesn't suffer it. Um, but the only sort of, so, do you know what? I'll be honest with you. I, less so now coming over here 10 years ago, massively, like I'm a little, mm. I'm a guy from New Zealand. Like mm. I am a fucking imposter. Um, five years in, yep. You still feel it. Mm. But the only sort of solace I can give to that now. And, and, and I don't necessarily think I sit around thinking about this every day in honesty because it'll drive you, it'll drive you insane. But mm. the only thing that, that I find solace is everyone's got it right. Mm. Everyone's got imposter syndrome. Um, show me someone that doesn't have imposter syndrome, I'll show you a fucking liar. Mm-hmm. So it's it's like that's got to be the that's the answer. Everyone's got it, so just ignore it. Like if they've got it, just hope they've got it worse than you. If you're competing, mm. if, if you know if they're for free and help them through mm-hmm. it. <laughs> but um, I, that that's truly what I think. It's like imagine working at Widening Kennedy. Mm. Fucking hell! Imagine the imposter syndrome there. Jesus. So like you know, I'm, that, try and rationalise those things as much as possible. But yeah, it's worse for them, right? Good point. Good point. Let's talk a little bit about entrepreneurship and and struggle porn. So you said you said that you don't like struggle porn. We glamorize entrepreneurship, and entrepreneurs are sort of seen as the new rock stars. 
yeah. uh, you know, you, you look at anything Gary V says, and it's just so cringeworthy, and it makes you feel as though. A, it's really easy to kind of be an entrepreneur. You just have to get out there and do it and hustle. Um, but you don't really like that narrative. Um, yeah, don't. I don't really love it. No, I mean the truth is, is it is hard. Um, and you know, well, I've only ever found it hard. Maybe maybe there's smarter people that find this thing a bruise. But I think like this whole just kind of follow your dreams, it'll happen. Just just kind of that sort of mentality is just kind of selling kids lies in all honesty. Like the reason why I say the entrepreneurs are the new rock stars is because when I was growing up, everyone wanted to be Kurt Cobain, right? Mm. Um, it's probably a bad example. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, what's a better example? At everyone the time, to, uh, at the time. At the time, yeah, yeah. Right. Like, you know, when, when, you know, early before, 90s. Stuff. Everyone wanted to be a rock star. Everyone wanted to be on stage. Sure. And so it made, you know, um, and it, it's it made it seem like all you had to do was follow your dreams and you could get there. It's, it's fucking bullshit. It's like there is so much luck involved in the success of what people sort of, you know, achieve in world. And yeah. everyone that's super successful will tell you that, but they don't seem to tell us that, you know, when, when, when you're sort of at this stage of, of the career and it's like, you've just got to, you, like the struggle porn basically says like I work every single hour of the day and you should be more like me and, I, yeah. and people people sometimes ask me like you know friends of mine saying I'm starting to I'm thinking about starting my own business and my answer is usually the same it's like well you know good for you it's great if you want to do that but just realize it will consume you it's yeah. not glamorous it's fucking hard it's torture yeah. like it's and and that's the only advice I can give because I, I really do think like this this you know, this agency of mine, it consumes almost every every moment of, uh, of of my thought process. How can we do that different? How can we change that? What could we have done different there? Yeah. What, how can we make that better and so on? Yeah. You don't get to clock off. So I don't think that, like, I'm not necessarily sure this is a great choice for, for, for people to take. For like, a lot of people, yeah. yeah. Well, but, it's not even just a lot of people. I'm not trying to sort of say it's a good choice for some. And it's like, it's a real choice. Like, mm. fucking, it is, like this is real this is like it is not going to be easy. So, 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 you know, don't don't try and glamorize the struggle. Let's be honest about it and say it's fucking hard. You know, do you really want to be? Do, does everyone want to be doing this? So, it's, so it's all consuming. And every waking hour, you, you're thinking about how things can be done better or, or different. And there's no clocking off. Would you have changed your decision to start an agency? Would you have gotten a regular job? Could you see yourself doing something different? I can. I, yeah, I can see something myself doing. Oh, really? Yeah, I can. I want to. I probably like getting a regular job, like a nine to five. That I'm not sure about. I wouldn't mind doing that for the experience at some point. Um, like you know, just to work on the other side of the fence, mm-hmm. maybe work for a brand or something of like that. Maybe you know, that, that's obviously not, um, not going to happen anytime soon. Yeah, I can see that. I, I can see that being kind of interesting. I'd like to do one more thing. Yeah, I'd like to. I'd like to do something that wasn't an agency land. Mm-hmm. The first thing that weren't an agency land, and mm-hmm. I'd like probably to do one more thing um before i you know fully fully give in and give up um but i guess the question is if you were if you had the chance to do it all again as a 16 year old or even as a 29 year old coming to the uk to start that agency or to not knowing what you know now what would you have done good question well there's kind of two answers to that i yeah i think i think starting a creative agency and again I, I have no experience outside this but I believe it seems to me it's got to be one of the hardest things to do to run it's it's almost a shrinking category for a start with the with the um, advent of like sort of data and in housing 
and all those types of things, it is it is much harder for agencies to to not be good, no, not be right at the top of the game and survive. So it is it is it's a hard category to get into. It's probably a saturated category. Like there's probably just too many agencies. In all honesty, mm. um, and it possibly with budget spends over the last five years, it's also you know actually technically a shrinking agency. So the smart move is to not create a creative agency. Would I do it differently? No. I, I mean I. Despite all that, and despite me sort of griping about how hard it is, I, f- I do like it. Mm. It's fun. I like coming to mm. work. I love the challenge of it. Mm. Um, uh, and yeah, I would do it again. I'd do it differently, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. I would try. If I could really do it again, then I would do it with the knowledge that I have and, and try and bring people in earlier that, that, that knew more than me. Okay. You would have made that decision earlier to bring yeah. in. Right. Awesome. Interesting. At, at what point? Oh, day one. Okay, as soon yeah. as possible, basically. Yeah. Really interesting. We would have would have probably started with a partner or two. That would yeah. that would make life easier. Really interesting. Final couple of questions before we get into our favourite interview questions that I ask all of my guests. With the industry battling the gender pay gap um, and inequality, your workforce is seventy five percent female. Was that intentional? Was that organic? How did that come about? And, and what are the benefits of that? Um, it's it's totally organic. It's not intentional. Um, I want to create a great agency um, first and foremost. Um, it turns out that other agencies seem to hire men in more senior positions or promote them more quickly. So therefore, there's more fantastic women out there that um, are being looked over. That's a fucking real easy competitive advantage. Um, don't look them over. Um, so that came about organically through wanting to hire the best people in every single seat. Um, and it turns out that the pool is possibly wider of females because hmm. they get looked over at other agencies. Hmm. Um, so the advantage of that is, is just that. I reckon I get, you know, I, I've got a wider pool to choose from mm-hmm. because you know, we're not sort of biased in, in any way, shape, or form. I, I find that, I tell you, to be honest, I find that whole thing just a fucking, just ridiculous. Like what part? Oh, just big agencies out there saying, you know. Um, we were, you know, the gender pay gap, we've got it, you know, we apologize for that. We're going to try and solve it by, you know, in the next sort of five, ten years. What, what, why five or ten? Just <laughs> easy. Just, just solve it. Right? Why is it taking so long? I don't yeah. understand. Maybe it's my na- naivety, yeah, but it just seems pretty simple to me. I don't know if it's my naivety as well. Like, it seems to me, just fucking pay them the same as you'd pay a man. Right. The same position and the job goes, and then, you know, jobs are good and it's done. But apparently that's not doable. Can't, can't figure out what. Yeah, really, really interesting. Uh, okay, I know I don't have you for very much longer, so let's get into our, our favourite questions. Right. Again, these are the questions that I ask everybody, so I'm really excited to ask you some of them as well. Um, tell us about a time when you failed, and this might go back to what you mentioned earlier, and what you learned from the experience. <laughs> uh, the last time I failed was about an hour ago when I was doing a creative review meeting I had no good solutions. So failure happens <laughs> every single day, sure. um, uh, big and small. Um, you've got to try and get more wins than failures so you're net out all right. I think that's the secret of life. But uh, what I learned, you know what? Um, this is what I actually truly believe about, about failure. Um, I don't believe that rite of passage bullshit, everyone's got to fail first. Like if, if, if I could not fail, I would fucking take that over failing some of the time and, and, and not the other time. Um, I think you've got to be very careful about what you learn, in all honesty. Like you can, you can, you can lose a pitch, you can lose a client, you can lose 
Um, you can lose control of a meeting. You can lose. You can fail at any moment. And if you try and learn from each one of those things, you're simply learning about the factors that you can't control, and it will screw you up. So I always try and say to people. If we lose the pitch, if, if something doesn't go right, if there's a failure somehow, let's be very careful. Let's ask the question, but let's be very careful what we are willing to learn from that because so much of what happens is outside your control. And if we go back to the really easy example of pitching, you know what? You can turn up there and you can and you can pitch, but the, there might have there's there's ten reasons beyond being being bring, turning up with the right work that means you lost that pitch. So you've got to be just. Let's just be careful what we learn, because if we learn something that actually doesn't help us, then then we're learning for the sake of it. So I don't know if that answers your question, but I, but I do truly believe that. Be very very careful what you're willing to learn, because some of it is just circumstantial. Okay, mentors and mentorship. Who influenced your early career? Who influenced the way that you think about growth and growing an agency? Tell us about some of your mentors. Uh, other people that have done it. In all honesty, I think that that's having been someone that has never done it and is and is doing it, or, or at least trying to do it. Um, I always look to people with the track record. So I've worked with a guy called Felix Velarde, who's on Brown and, and fantastic uh, guy. He's been on the show. Yep, great guy. Uh, I work with him. I'm currently working with some guys from um, that uh, used to be with the founders of FCB of, of Inferno. That was mm -hmm. now FCB Inferno. So I really like those guys. I like the guys with the war stories, with the sort of I've been here. Mm -hmm. I can tell you what they, you know, I did in that situation, and maybe that's helpful. I would much rather learn from them mm -hmm. and some, you know, sort of theoretical sort of learning mm -hmm. that some airport paperback. The books question. Tell us about some of your favorite books, either marketing related, non-marketing related, fiction, non-fiction, whatever. Okay. Um, so one of the best books I ever read, which was really early on in my advertising sort of career or creative career, was on uh, was a was an ad on print advertising actually. Um, and it's called it's got a terrible name. It's called um, Cutting Edge Advertising, I think. Okay. Um, and it's a terrible name for a book, but it, it boils down like the difference between great advertising and and and, and average wallpaper advertising. And I think it's the, one of the best books ever written, especially mm. if you're, you know, I read it. I reckon I read it when I was in my late twenties. I wish I read it when I was seventeen or eighteen. Oh, it's really? Book. Yep. That good. What yeah, What is the difference between average advertising and, and cutting edge advertising? So we know, like, from the world of like, you know, uh, and I, I use advertising broader since the word content and yeah. so on. We know that. Advertising that makes that engages the consumer obviously works better, right? To make people go, uh, stop and think and listen uh, sure. and, and engage with us, ads better. Jerry Seinfeld, I reckon learning from comedians is also pretty good. So Jerry Seinfeld talks about this idea that a joke, a, a setup and a punchline in a joke is all about the distance. So you bring people on a journey in your setup and your punchline must be the correct distance away from, from, your, from your setup. So right. if, if it's too far, it's ridiculous and no one will get it. And if it's too close, it's too obvious. Sure. And, to get that punchline right. So what this book really talks about is, well, how do you get, um, what is the fundamental ideas behind advertising that engages people and, and gets them to, to engage in their, on an intelligent level? And it talks about um, um, headlines and art. So really classic, it boils it down to classic ad, whether we've got a, um, a headline and, and, and an image, basically. And, and what, they, what they talk about in this book is that only one of them can hold the joke. Only one of them can be what they call bent. So if you've got a headline that's bent, that kind of creates a joke, You've got to have a, an image that um, is, is what they call straight. And that is like, you might have a fantastic, like the, one of the classic Ogilvy ads is right. Um, 
um, the quietest thing you'll you'll hear in the new Rolls Royce is the clock. Oh, sorry, the loudest thing you'll mm. hear in the new Rolls Royce is, is the clock mm. or the tick of the clock. Mm -hmm. Now, if they put an ad there, and if they put an image with that ad that was like a um, a clock, and it was you know it had it was you know I don't know, sign mm. some big alarm sound, mm -hmm. so it was, it was a really loud clock. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Any sense? Because the, the two, uh, the, the two, the line and the artwork are trying to do the same job. Really interesting. The image of a car with that headline is where the, the consumer's got to take the leap and, and engage their imagination. Absolutely and, love it. I think it's brilliant. Love it. What's the most interesting thing people don't know about Michael Scantonbury? <laughs> we had a we had a day here the other day where everyone said, "Tell me a secret about you," and everyone went round it and it got to me as the final person. Um, and my answer was. When I was um, 11 years old, me and my friend burnt down a classroom. Oh, no. <laughs> okay. How do you do that? I, obviously, uh, no one was hurt. No, no one was hurt. Um, we were um, doing, like, pottery at school, and the teacher said, like, take the embers from the kiln and take them to the back of the field. Me and my friend thought, well, the back of the field is the back of the field. That seems like a long way to walk oh with, this, with this tin wheelbarrow. Oh. We'll just dump them under this classroom oh. here. My it God. was the last day of term, and when we came back on a week later or two weeks later, the classroom burned oh, down. So it was kind of this beautiful situation where the teacher knew that he shouldn't really be letting 11-year-olds take embers <laughs> from a kiln down there, and we knew we shouldn't have put them there, but it was almost <laughs> a game of chicken that no one was going oh, to talk. Okay. Thankfully, no one was hurt from that experience. Hurt, yeah. <laughs> you learned something. Uh, yeah. what, do you do, what do you do to keep mentally and physically fit? Oh, not enough. Um, <laughs> Yeah, that's the honest answer. All <laughs> right, fair enough. Moving on, Amazon Prime or Netflix? Um, either or. That's okay. kind of that's that's the beauty of those platforms, and and I guess the problem to them, it's too easy to switch, right? You go from one to the other. It's what is it, ten quid a month? Like, what's another? You know, it's it's too easy to switch. So either or. Well, they're banking on people having both, having multiple, you know, Disney Plus and Amazon and Netflix, and it's not an either or. Um, uh, and you know what? That's a smart lesson for young brand managers to learn. You don't need to be the only thing your consumer buys. You just need to be in a large pool of consumers' consideration set to buy you sometimes. Mm. That's, you know, that, that, that's a, yeah, and that's a great example of it. Love it. In the last three to five years, what ideas, behaviors, or habits have you added or removed from your life that have improved your outcomes? Um, trying to learn the ability to not just be a creative sort of um, advertising brand person, but to think about how to manage people and how people work, how what motivates people and how to understand people and so on is a thing that I'm trying to learn the most about. It helps both, in all honesty, from an advertising point of view to how to motivate people in that space, but also how to engage and like share visions with, with teams of people. That's that's the thing that I, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I, I believe I'm quite good at, um, which is a new string for my bow in the last three or five years. Hmm. Quite, quite fascinating. A millennial or young person comes up to you and says they want to start an agency, a creative agency. What advice do you give her? I can run for the hills. <laughs> don't do it. <laughs> I can do it. Choose anything else. Well, what do you want to do it? Do you want to do it for the money? Then don't do it. And do you want to do it because it sounds sexy and glamorous? Then don't do it. If you want to do it because you really like the idea of growing value in brands, go nuts. Take your best shot. Hmm. But, oh, you know what? I'll change my answer. Even then, don't fucking do it because there's too many <laughs> emergencies. Brilliant. Love it. And my final question, Michael, what do you know about growing an agency today that you wish you knew when you started all those years ago? Uh, um, how to do it. 
and I still wish I knew. Like I like going through all those gates I talked about early on, how to do it. If I knew that then, those gates would have been easier to get through. So I just wish I knew. And, and you know, we face it now again, and we'll face another one. I just wish I could learn faster how to do it, possibly because I've never done it before. Um, that, that, is, that is the honest answer there. Michael, this has been so much fun. Thank you for doing this. No worries. Good talking. We have been speaking with Michael Scansonbury. He is currently the founder and creative director at Impero. If you enjoyed this conversation, then head over to Apple Podcasts where you can listen to 42 such conversations we've had with world-class sales and marketing leaders. Thank you for all your feedback and suggestions on LinkedIn. Email me at nathan at agencydealmasters.com. We would be unable to do this show without our very own dealmasters. Ahmed Ahmed is our editor. Genevieve Mageki is our booker slash project manager. Marion Begum is our head of research. I'm Nathan Anibaba. You've been listening to Agency Dealmasters.